Osho, God is dead. Now Zen is the only living truth. Talks given at the Osho Commune International, Pune, India. Discourse number one. beloved master on their first meeting Sagan asked Sakito where do you come from and Sakito replied I come from Soke Sagan held up a whisk and said did you find this over there Sakito replied no not only was it not over there, but it was also not in the Westland. Sagan asked, You reached the Westland, didn't you? To which Sakito replied, If I had reached, I could have found it. Sagan said, Not yet enough. Speak further. Sakito replied, you should also speak from your side. How is it you urge only me? Sagan said, There's no problem for me in answering you, but nobody would agree with it. 
Sagan continued, When you were at Seike, what did you get there? Sakita replied, Even before going to Soke, I hadn't lost a thing. Then Sakito asked, When you were in Soke, did you know yourself? Sagan said, How about you? Do you know me now? Sakito answered, Yes, I do. How can I know you any further? He continued, Osho, since you left Soke, how long have you been staying here? Sagan replied, I do not know either. And you, when did you leave Soke? Sakito said, I don't come from Soke. Sagan responded, All right, now I know where you come from. Sakito said, Osho, you are a great one. Do not waste time. A new series of talks begins today. God is dead. Now Zen is the only living truth. The series is dedicated to Frederick Nietzsche, who was the first man in the history of mankind to declare that God is dead, therefore man is free. It was a tremendous statement. Its implications are many. First I would like to discuss Nietzsche's statement. All the religions believe that God created the world and also mankind. But if you are created by someone, you are only a puppet. You don't have your own soul. And if you are created by somebody, he can uncreate you any moment. Neither he asks you whether you want to be created, neither he is going to ask you do you want to be uncreated. God is the greatest dictator. If you accept the fiction that he created the world and created also mankind, if God is a reality, then man is a slave a puppet. All the strings are in his hands, even his life. 
then there is no question of any enlightenment. Then there is no question of there being any Gautam di Buddha. Because there is no freedom at all. He pulls the strings, you dance. He pulls the strings, you are crying. He pulls the strings, you start murders, suicide, war. You are just a puppet and he is the puppeteer. Then there is no question of sin or virtue. No question of sinners and saints. Nothing is good and nothing is bad because you are only a puppet. A puppet cannot be responsible for its actions. Responsibility belongs to someone who has the freedom to act. Either God can exist or freedom. Both cannot exist together. That is the basic implication of Frederick Nietzsche's statement. God is dead, therefore man is free. No theologian, no founder of religions, thought about this, that if you accept God as the Creator, you are destroying the whole dignity of consciousness, of freedom, of love. You are taking all responsibility from man and you are taking all his freedom away. You are reducing whole existence just as a whim of a strange fellow called God. But Nietzsche's statement is bound to be only one side of the coin. He is perfectly right but only about the one side of the coin. He has declared a very significant and meaningful statement, but he has forgotten one thing, which was bound to happen because his statement is based on rationality, logic, and intellect. It is not based on meditation. Man is free, but free for what? If there is no God and man is free, that will simply mean man is now Capable to do anything good or bad, there is nobody to judge him, nobody to forgive him. This freedom will be simply licentiousness. 
there comes the other side. You remove God and you leave the man utterly empty. Of course, you declare his freedom, but to what purpose? How he is going to use his freedom creatively, responsibly? How he is going to avoid freedom being reduced into licentiousness? Frederick Nietzsche was not aware of any meditations. That is the other side of the coin. Man is free and his freedom can be only a joy and a blessing to him if he is rooted in meditation. Remove the God. That is perfectly okay. He has been the greatest danger to human freedom. But give man also some meaning and significance, some creativity, some receptivity, some path to find his eternal existence. Zen is the other coin, the other side of the coin. Zain does not have any God. That's its beauty. But it has a tremendous science to transform your consciousness, to bring so much awareness to you that you cannot commit evil. It is not a commandment from outside. It comes from your innermost being. Once you know your center of being, once you know you are one with the cosmos, and the cosmos has never been created, it has been there always and always and will be there always and always, from eternity to eternity. Once you know your luminous being, your hidden Gautam Buddha, it is impossible to do anything wrong, it is impossible to do anything evil, it is impossible to do any sin. Frederick Nietzsche in his last phase of life almost became insane. He had been hospitalized, kept 
into a mad asylum. Nobody has bothered such a great giant. What happened to him? Although he concluded God is dead, but it is a negative conclusion. He became empty. His freedom was meaningless. There is no joy in it because it was only freedom from God. But for what? Freedom has two sides, from and far. The other side was missing. That drive him insane. Emptiness always drives people insane. You need some grounding. You need some centering. You need some relationship with the existence. God being dead, all your relationship with existence was finished. God being dead, you were left alone without roots. A tree cannot live without roots, neither you can live. God was non-existential, but it was a good consolation. It used to fill people's interior, although it was a lie. But even a lie, repeated thousands and thousands of times for millennia, becomes almost a truth. A great consolation God has been to people in their fear, in their dread, in their awareness of old age and death and the beyond, the unknown darkness. God has been a tremendous consolation, although it was in life. Lies can console you, you have to understand it. In fact, lies are more sweeter than the truth. Gautam Buddha is reported to have said that truth is bitter in the beginning, sweet in the end. And lies are sweet in the beginning, bitter in the end, when they are exposed then comes a tremendous bitterness that you have been deceived by all your parents, by all your teachers, by all your priests, by all your so-called leaders. You have been continuously deceived. That frustration brings a great distrust in everybody. Nobody is worthy of trust. It creates a vacuum. 
Sanamisa was not insane in his last phase of life. It was the very conclusion of its negative approach. And intellect can only be negative. It can argue and criticize and be sarcastic, but it cannot give you any nourishment. From no negative standpoint you can get any nourishment. So he lost his God and he lost his consolation. He became free just to be mad. And it is not only Frederick Nietzsche, so it cannot be said that it was just an accident. Many intellectual giants find themselves into mad asylums or commit suicide because nobody can live in a negative darkness. One needs light and a positive, affirmative experience of truth. Nietzsche demolished the light and created a vacuum in himself and in others who followed him. But if you feel deep down a vacuum, utter emptiness with no meaning, it is because of Frederick Nietzsche a whole philosophy has grown in the West. Nietzsche is the founder of a very negative approach to life, Soren Kierkegaard and Japan Sartre and Marcel and Jespers and Martin Heidegger, all the great giants of the first half of this century were talking only about meaninglessness, anguish, suffering, anxiety, dread, fear, angst, and this philosophy has been called in the West existentialism. It is not. It is simply non-existentialism. It destroys everything that has consoled you. I agree with the destruction because that was consoling man was only lies. God, heaven, hell, 
all were fictions created to console men. It is good they are destroyed, but you are leaving men into an utter vacuum. Out of that vacuum existentialism is born, that's why it talks only about meaninglessness. Life has no meaning. It talks about no significance. You are just an accident. Whether you are here or not does not matter at all to existence. And these people call their philosophy existentialism. They should call it accidentalism. You are not needed. Just by accident, on the margin, somehow you have popped up. God was making you a puppet. And these philosophers from Nietzsche to Jyapal Sat are making you accidental. And there is a tremendous need in man's being to be related to existence. He needs roots into existence. Because only if the roots go deep into existence, he will blossom into a Buddha. He will blossom into millions of flowers. His life will not be meaningless. His life will be tremendously overflowing with meaning, significance, blissfulness. His life will be simply a celebration. But the conclusion of the so-called existentialist is that you are unnecessary. That your life has no meaning, no significance, Existence is not in need of you at all. So I want to complete Frederick Nietzsche's work. It is incomplete. It will lead to whole humanity to madness. Not only Frederick Nietzsche, but the whole humanity. Without God, certainly you are free, but for what? You are left with empty hands. You were with empty hands before also because the hands that looked full were full of lies. Now you are absolutely aware that the hands are empty and there is nowhere to go. 
I have heard about one atheist, very famous atheist. He died. And his wife tried to bring the best dress, the best shoes, before he is put in a coffin, the best tie, the costliest possible. She wanted to give him a good farewell, a good send-off. He was dressed as he had never dressed in his whole life. And then friends came and neighbors came, and one woman said, Wow! He is all dressed up and nowhere to go. <laughs> because he was an atheist, so he did not believe in God, he did not believe in heaven, he did not believe in hell, nowhere to go. And completely well dressed. But this is the situation, any negative philosophy is going to leave the whole mankind well-dressed, ready to go, but nowhere to go. This situation creates insanity. It was not an accident that Frederick Nietzsche became insane, it was the outcome of his negative philosophy. Hence I am calling this series, God is dead, now Zen is the only living truth. I absolutely agree with Frederick Nietzsche as far as God is concerned. But I want to complete his statement, which he could not do. He was not an awakened being, he was not an enlightened being. A Gautam Buddha also does not have a God. Neither Mahavira has a God. But they never went mad. All the Zen masters and all the great Tao masters, Lao Tzu, Chuang Tzu, Li Tzu, nobody went mad and they don't have any God. They don't have any hell or heaven. What is the difference? Why Gautam Buddha did not went mad? And it is not only Gautam Buddha, in twenty-five centuries hundreds of his people have become enlightened and they don't even talk about God. They don't even say that there is no God because there is no point. They are not atheists. I am not an atheist, 
neither I am a thief. God simply is not there, so there is no question of atheism or theism. But I'm not match. You are my witnesses. It does not create a vacuum in me. On the contrary, there being no God, I have gained the dignity of an individual who is free, free to become a Buddha. That is the ultimate goal of freedom. Unless your freedom becomes your very flowering of awareness and the experience of freedom leads you into eternity, leads you into the roots, into the cosmos and existence. you are going to be matched. Your life will be meaningless, with no significance. Whatever you do, it does not matter. Existence, according to the so-called existentialists, which are all following Friedrich Nietzsche, he is the founder, is absolutely unintelligent. Because they have taken away God, so they think according to the logic it seems apparently true. If there is no God, existence also becomes dead, with no intelligence, with no life. God used to be the life God used to be the consciousness, God used to be the very meaning, the very salt of our being. When God is no more there, this whole existence becomes soulless. Then life becomes just a byproduct of matter. So when you will die, everything will die. Nothing will remain and there is no question of being good or bad. Existence is absolutely indifferent. It does not care about you. God used to care about you. Once God is removed, Great strangeness starts happening between you and existence. There is no relationship. Existence does not care, cannot care because it is not conscious anymore. It is no more an intelligent universe. It is simply dead matter, just as you are. And the life that you think is only a byproduct. A byproduct 
disappears immediately when the elements that were creating it separate for example religions believe man is made of five elements earth air fire water iskal once these five elements are together life is produced as a byproduct when these five elements separate in death life disappears to make it clear to you you ride on a bicycle in the beginning when you learn you fall many times i have also learned but i had not fallen while learning because first i watched the learners why they fall they fall because they don't have the confidence in fact to be on two wheels you need tremendous balance and if you hesitate it is just like walking on a tight rope if you hesitate just for a moment those two wheels cannot keep you up your seat and those two wheels can remain in balance only at a certain speed and the learner is bound to move is slowly obviously that seems to be rational that you are a learner you should not go with great speed i watched all my friends learning bicycle and they always told me why don't you learn i said i am first watching i am watching why you fall and why after few days you stop falling and once i got the point for the first time i went as fast as possible <laughs> all my friends were puzzled they said we have never seen a learner go that fast a learner is bound to fall few times then he learns how to balance i said i have been watching and i got the clue the clue is because they are not confident not alert that a certain speed is needed to keep the bicycle moving you cannot stop it and sit on top of it without falling 
So there is a certain momentum that is needed. So you have to go on paddling. Once I knew exactly where the problem is, I simply went so fast that my whole village wondered what has happened to him because he does not know and he is going with such speed. It was difficult for me how to stop. Because I was concerned if I stop, the cycle is going to fall. So I had to go to a place where there was a huge bodhi tree near the railway station. It was almost three miles from my house. Three miles I rushed so fast that people gave way, standing by the side. They said, this is absolutely madness. But my madness has a method in it. I was going directly to that tree because I knew that tree has become hollow. So I pushed my bicycle in the hollow tree. So the first front wheel was inside the tree. <laughs> then I could stop. There was no problem of falling. One villager who was working in his field sadist, he said, this is a stream. He asked me, if there is no tree like this, how you are going to stop? I said, I have learned how to stop because I have already stopped. I will not need any tree anymore. But this was my first experience. I had not seen those people stopping, I had seen them falling. So I had no experience about stopping. That's why I was running so fast to reach to the Bodhi tree. One part of it has become completely hollow and it was a huge tree. So I knew that that will be the right place to put my wheel inside and hold the tree. <laughs> but once I have stopped, I have learned how to stop. When it came to learn driving, Mazid will be surprised that the man who was teaching me driving, his name was Majid. He was a Mohammedan. He was one of the best drivers in the city. And he loved me very much. In fact, he has chosen my first car. So he told me that, I will teach you. I said, I don't 
like to be taught. You just drive slowly so I can see and watch. He said, what do you mean? I said, I learn only by watching. I don't want any teacher ever. He said, but it is dangerous. Bicycle was okay. At the most you had, you could have hurt yourself or somebody, but not much. A car is a dangerous thing. I said, I am a dangerous man. You just drive it slowly and tell me everything about where is the pedal, where is the accelerator, where is the brake. You just tell me. And then you slowly move and I will be walking by your side, just watching what you are doing. He said, if you want this way, I can do, but I am very much afraid. If you do the same thing with the car as you have done with the bicycle, <laughs> I said, that's why I am trying to watch more closely. And once I got the idea, I told him to get out. And I did really the same thing as I had done with the bicycle. <laughs> I went so fast, Majid, my teacher, was running behind me, shouting, not that fast. But I, I knew once I know it, and in that city there was no limit. On speed, because in Indian streets you cannot go beyond fifty-five there is no need to put on every place a board that speed limit is fifty-five miles per hour. You cannot go anywhere beyond fifty-five. But that poor fellow was very much afraid. He came running. He was a very tall, Man, he used to participate into races, and he was a champion of the state. And there was every possibility that he will become the champion of the whole India. And perhaps someday he will be participating in the Olympics. He was a very tall man, perhaps seven feet, long legs. He tried hard to follow me, but soon I disappeared from his vision. When I came back, he was praying, he was a monk, praying <laughs> under a tree, praying to God for my safety. And when I stopped by his side, just so close that he jumped 
forgot all the prayer. I said, don't be worried. I have learned the whole thing. What you were doing here? He was. He said, I have followed you, but soon you disappeared. Then I thought the only thing is to pray to God to help him because he knows nothing about driving. For the first time he has entered on the driver's seat and he has gone nobody knows where. And how you turn, where you turn back? I said, I had no idea how to turn because you were just moving and I was walking by your side so I had no idea. So I had to go around the city. I had no idea how to turn, what signals to give because you have not given any signals or any idea to me. But I managed, I went around the whole city so fast <laughs> that the traffic was simply giving way. And I came back and he said, Khuda Hafiz. It means God saved you. I said, don't bring God in. Once you know that a certain balance is needed between the negative and the positive, then you have your roots into existence. This is one extreme to believe in God. This is another extreme not to believe in God and you have to be just in the middle, absolutely balanced. Atheism becomes irrelevant, theism becomes irrelevant, but your balancing brings a new light, a new joy, a new blissfulness to you a new intelligence which is not of the mind. That intelligence which is not of the mind makes you aware that the whole existence is tremendously intelligent. It is not only alive, it has sensitivity, it has intelligence, once you know your inner being is balanced and silent and peaceful, suddenly doors that have been closed by your thoughts simply move and the whole existence becomes clear to you. You are not accidental. Existence needs you. Without you, something will be missing in existence and nobody can replace it. That's what gives you dignity. That the whole existence will miss you with stars and sun and moon. The trees, the birds, the earth, 
Everything in the universe will feel a small place is vacant which cannot be filled by anybody except you. This gives you a tremendous joy, a fulfillment that you are related with existence and existence cares for you. Once you are clean and clear, you can see tremendous love falling on you from all dimensions. You are the highest evolution of existence intelligence and it is dependent on you If you grow higher than the mind and its intelligence, towards no mind and its intelligence, existence is going to celebrate one man again has reached to the ultimate peak. One part of existence has suddenly risen to the highest possibilities The intrinsic potential in everybody, a parable is there that the day Gautam Buddha became enlightened, the tree under which he had become enlightened suddenly without any wind started moving. He was amazed because there was no wind, no other tree around was moving, not even a single leaf was moving. But the tree under which he was sitting was moving, as if it is dancing, but it does not have legs it is so rooted in the earth, but it can at least show its joy. It is a very strange phenomenon that the certain chemicals which make you intelligent, which give you a better mind, those chemicals are found in the Bodhi tree in the greatest amount than in any other tree. So it is not just coincidence that the tree under which Gautam Buddha became enlightened is still called according to his name. Bodhi means enlightenment. And the tree scientists have found has the largest amount of intelligence than any other tree in the world. It has that chemical 
so much overflowing. When Manjushri, one of Gautam Buddha's closest disciples, became enlightened by stories, it was not the season, but under the tree he was sitting, suddenly it started showering with flowers, and it was not the season for the tree to bring flowers. It may be just a parable, but it shows these parables indicate that we are not separate from existence, that our joy will be shared even by the trees, even by the rocks, that our enlightenment will be a festival to the whole existence. It is meditation that fulfills your inner being and takes away the vacuum that used to be filled by a great lie, God, and many lies have grown around Him. If you remain with the negative, you are going to be insane sooner or later, because you have lost all contact with existence, you have lost every meaning, every possibility of finding meaning. You have certainly dropped lies, it is good, but that is not enough to find the truth. Drop the lies and make some effort to go inwards to find the truth. That is the whole science of Zen. That's why I have titled the series, God is dead, now Zen is the only living truth. If God is dead and you don't come close to the experience of Zen, you will become insane. Your sanity depends now only on sin. That is the only way to find the truth, then you are absolutely related with existence and you are no more a puppet, you are a master. And a man who knows his relation deep relation with existence cannot commit anything against existence, against life. It is simply impossible. He can only pour as much blissfulness, as much benediction, as much grace as you are ready to receive but his sources are inexhaustible. When you have found your inexhaustible sources of life and its ecstasy, then it does not matter whether you have a God or not, 
It does not matter whether there is a hell or a heaven. It does not matter at all. So religious people when they read Zen are simply puzzled because it is not talking about anything they have been taught from the very beginning. It is talking about strange dialogues which have nothing, no place for God, no place for paradise, no place for hell. It is a scientific religion. Its search is not based on belief, its search is based on experience. Just as science is objectively based on experiment, Zen is based subjectively on experience. One science goes outward, another science goes inward. Nietzsche has no idea how to go inward. The West has been a wrong place for people like Frederick Nietzsche. If he has been in the East, he would have been a far greater master, a man of absolute sanity, he would have been in the same category, in the same family of the Buddhas. But unfortunately, the West has not learned the lesson even now. It goes on working so hard on the objects, even one-tenth energy will be enough to find the inner truth. Even as Albert Einstein dies in deep frustration. The frustration was so great that before he died he was asked, if you are born again, what you are going to be? He said, never again a physicist. I would like rather to be a plumber. The greatest physicist the world has known dies in such frustration that he does not want to do anything with physics, anything with science, he wants a simple job, just like a plumber. But even that is not going to help. If physics has not helped, if mathematics has not helped, if such a great intelligence like Albert Einstein dies in frustration, being a plumber is not going to help, still you are being outside. Scientists may be too much deeply involved, plumber may not be that much involved, but he is still working outside. 
plumber is not going to give him what he needs. He needs the silence of meditation. From that silence flowers meaning, significance, a tremendous joy that you are not accidental. I say unto you that what I am teaching to you is authentic existentialism, and what in the West is thought to be existentialism is only accidentalism. I am teaching you how to come in contact with existence, how to find out where you are connected, wired with existence, from where you are getting your life moment to moment, from where is coming your intelligence. If existence is unintelligent, how can you be intelligent? From where you will get it? When you see the rose flowers blossoming, have you ever thought that all this color, all this softness, all this beauty was hidden somewhere in the seed? But the seed alone was not enough to become a rose. It needed the support of existence, that is the soil, the water, the sun. Then the seed disappeared into the soil, and the rose bush started growing. Now it needs air, it needs water, it needs the earth, it needs the sun, it needs the moon. All these together transform the seed which was almost like a dead piece of a stone. Suddenly a transformation, a metamorphosis. These roses, these colors, this beauty, this fragrance cannot come to it unless existence has it already. It may be hidden. It may be covered in a seed. But anything that happens means it was there already, maybe as a potential. You have intelligence. I have told you the story of Ramakrishna and Kesav Chandra Sen. Kesav Chandra was one of the most intelligent people of his time. He has founded a religion just on his intellectual philosophy, Brahma Samaj, the Society for God.
and he had hundreds and thousands intelligent people very intelligent group as his followers and he was puzzled that this uneducated ramakrishna who had only been to the second grade primary school not even completed the primary school in india it has four years he has done only two years course half of the primary school that is the lowest school why thousands of people are going to this idiot that was keshav chandra sen's mind finally he decided he has to go and defeat this man because he could not think that this man may be able not to be defeated by argument that was impossible to his mind to think this idiot from a, a small village is collecting thousands of people every day from far and wide people are coming to see him and to touch his feet kesav chandra with his followers informed ramakrishna that i am coming on such a such day to challenge you on every point in which you believe and be ready ramakrishna's followers were very much afraid they knew kesav chandra is a great logician poor ramakrishna will not be able to answer anything but ramakrishna was very much joyful he danced he said i have been waiting all this time when kesav chandra comes that will be a great day of joy his disciples said what are you saying that will be a day of great sadness because you cannot argue with him ramakrishna said wait who is going to argue with him i don't need to argue let him come but his disciples were shaky very shaky very much afraid that their master is going to be defeated completely crushed they knew kesav chandra there was no parallel in that century to kesav chandra's intelligence in this country in kesav chandra came with 100 of his top most disciples to see the argument the debate the challenge and then kesav chandra came ramakrishna was standing on the road to receive him far away from the temple where he used to live and he hugged kesav chandra and kesav chandra felt a little embarrassed and that embarrassment went on growing he took his hand in his hand and took him inside he said i have been waiting and waiting for years why you did not come before 
near the temple by the side of the Ganges, a beautiful place under a tree, and Ramakrishna said, start. So Kesar Chandra asked him, what do you say about God? Ramakrishna said, have I to say anything about God? Can't you see God in my eyes? Kesar looked a little puzzled, what kind of argument is this? Can't you feel God in my hand? Come closer, boy. <laughs> And Kesar Chandra said, what kind of argument? He has been in many debates, he has defeated many great scholars, and this villager in Hindi, the word for idiot is gamar, but it actually means the villager. Ga means village and gamar means from the village. But gamar is used as stupid, retarded, idiot, And Ramakrishna said, if you cannot understand the language of my eyes, if you cannot understand the energy of my hands, then you are enough a proof that existence is intelligent. From where you have got your intelligence? This was a grand argument. He was saying that if you have got this great intelligence, and I know you are a great intelligent person, I have always loved you. But tell me from where it comes, if existence is without intelligence, you cannot get it. From where? You are the proof that existence is intelligent. And that is what I mean by God. To me God is not somebody sitting on the cloud. To me God simply means existence is not an intelligent. It is an intelligent universe and we belong and we are needed. It rejoices in our rejoicings it celebrates in our celebrations, it dances with our dance. Have you seen my dance? And he started dancing. Case of Chandra said, what to do? 
but he danced so beautifully. He was a good dancer because he used to dance in the temple sometimes from morning till evening. No coffee breath. <laughs> he will dance and dance till he will fall on the ground. So he started dancing with such joy and such grace that suddenly there was a transformation in Kesuchandra. He forgot all his logic. He saw the beauty of this man. He saw the splendor of this man. He saw the joy which he has never felt. All that intellect, all those arguments were just superficial. Inside there was utter emptiness. This man was so overflowing. He touched the feet of Ramakrishna and said, Forgive me. I was absolutely wrong about you. I know nothing and I have been just philosophizing. You know everything and you are not saying a single word. Ramakrishna said, I will forgive you only on one condition. Kesavchindra said, any condition from your side, I am dead. Ramakrishna said, the condition is once in a while you have to come to discuss with me, to debate with me, to challenge me. <laughs> this is the way of a mystic. And Kesav Chandra was completely finished. He became a totally different man. He started to come every day. Soon his disciples deserted him that he has gone mad. <laughs> that madman infected him so much. There has been only one madman now, there are two. He is also dancing with him. But Kesav Chandra who was a sad man, grudging, complaining about everything, because he was living in a negative space, became suddenly blossoming. Flowers came to his being, a new fragrance. He forgot all logic. This man helped him to have a taste of something that is beyond mind. Zen is the method to go beyond mind. So we will be discussing God and Zen together. God has to be negated and Zen has to be planted deepest in your being. The lie has to be destroyed and the truth has to be revealed. That's why I have chosen God and Zen together. God is 
a lie, then is it true. The first question, is God really dead? The very idea of his death creates intense anxiety, fear, dread and anguish. The way I look at things, God has never been there. So how he can be dead? He was never born in the first place. It was invented by the priests and it, it was invented for exactly these reasons that man was in anxiety, man was in fear, man was in dread, man was in anguish. When there was no light, no fire, just think those days of humanity. And wild animals all around, and the dark night, no fire, the intense cold, no clothes, and the wild animals searching for their food in the night, and people were hiding into caves, sitting on the trees, just to avoid, in the day at least they could see that a lion is approaching, they could make some effort to escape. But in the night they were at completely in the hands of the wild animals and then they found that when time comes people become old for no reason and one day somebody dies. They could not understand what is happening. This man was talking Breathing, walking was perfectly okay. Suddenly, he is no more breathing, he is no more talking. It was such a shock to the primitive man that became a taboo. Don't talk about it. Even talking about it created fear. Fear that Sooner or later you are standing in the same queue and the queue is becoming smaller and smaller every moment. Somebody dies and you are coming closer to death. Another dies, you are coming more closer to death. Even to talk about death became a taboo. And not only to ordinary primitive people, even to the most sophisticated and the founder of psychoanalysis, Sigmund Freud, could not tolerate the word death. It was not allowed to mention the word before him, because just the mentioning of the 
of the word death and he will fall into a fit. He will become unconscious and will start foaming. Such was the fear of the man who founded psychoanalysis. Three times it happened. This was the reason why Carl Gustav Jung, another great psychoanalyst, who was going to succeed Sigmund Freud, he was chosen by Sigmund Freud to be his successor. He was his greatest intellectual joint disciples. But they were traveling from Europe to America to deliver lectures on psychoanalysis to many universities, both together. And on the deck of the ship, Carl Gustav Jung mentioned death. And immediately Sigmund Freud fell on the death. And that was the reason that Sigmund Freud expelled Jung from psychoanalytic movements. And he had to found another school, he called it analytical psychology. Just a different name, but it is the same process. But the reason of his expulsion was the mention of death. Two things have been taboos in the world, and those two things are two polarities of the same energy. One is sex which has been taboo, don't talk about it. And another is death which is taboo, don't talk about it. And both are connected. In the beginning is the sex, in the end is death. It is sex that brings death in. Only one animal does not die, that is amoeba. <laughs> and you know perfectly well, because Puna is so full of amoebas. I have chosen this place especially, because amoebas are immortal beings. And their immortality depends because they are not sexual beings. They are not byproduct of sex, so there is no death. So sex and death are absolutely connected. Just try to understand. Sex brings you in life, and life finally ends into death. Sex is the beginning, death is the end. In between is what you call life. Amoeba is a non-sexual animal, the only celibate monk in the whole world. It reproduces in a very different way. God must be immensely happy if he is there with the amoebas. They are all saints. They simply go on eating and becoming fatter and fatter. 
and at a certain point they divide into two. One amoeba becomes so fat that it becomes impossible for him to move. He divides in two. This is a different way of reproduction. But because there is no sex involved, there is no male, no female. Both the amoebas start eating again. <laughs> Soon they will be fat enough to divide again. So it is by a very mathematical method they create. There is no death. Amoeba never dies unless murdered. <laughs> He can live eternity to eternity if medical science does not murder them. But their immortality depends because they are not byproduct of sex. Any animal who is born of sex is going to die. He cannot be immortal in the body. So these two things have been taboos in the world, sex and death. Both have been kept hidden. Nobody talks about sex. I have been condemned all around the world because I simply talked about every taboo without any inhibition because I want you to know everything about life from sex to death. Only then you can rise beyond sex and death. In your understanding you can start approaching something which is beyond sex and beyond death. That is your eternity. That is your life energy, pure energy. By sex your body is born, not you. By death your body dies, not you. So it is absolute unnecessary to make those taboos. But religions have a great investment in creating anxiety in you fear, dread and anguish, and nature was already producing it. Religions and particularly the priests all over the world, whatever their denomination, have exploited man's fear, gave him God's affection, a lie but it at least temporarily covers the wounds. Don't be afraid, God is taking care of you. Don't be in any dread or anxiety, there is God and everything is okay. All that you have to do is believe in God and believe in the representative of God, the priest, and believe in the holy scripture that God has sent to the world.
All that you have to do is to believe and this belief has been covering your anxiety, fear, dread, anguish. So when you hear God is dead, the very idea of his death creates intense anxiety. That means your wound has been uncovered. But a covered wound is not a healed wound. In fact, for a healing process it has to be uncovered. Only then in the sun rays, in the open air, it will start healing. A wound should never be covered. Because covering it, you start forgetting about it. You want to forget about it. Once it is covered, not only others don't see it, you yourself don't see it. And under the cover it goes on becoming a cancer. Every wound has to be healed, not covered. Covering is not the way. God was the cover. That's why the very concept that God is dead creates fear. Whatever comes to your mind, intense anxiety, fear, dread and anguish, these were the things priests were covering with the word God. But by their covering, they have stopped man's evolution towards Buddhahood. They have stopped man's healing process. They have stopped man's search for truth. A lie was handed over to you as truth. Naturally, you need not search for truth, you have it already. It is absolutely necessary that God should be dead. But I want you to know my understanding. It was good of Frederick Nietzsche to declare God dead. I declare that he has never been born. It is a created fiction. Invention, not a discovery. Do you understand the difference between invention and discovery? A discovery is about truth. An invention is manufactured by you. It is man-manufactured fiction. Certainly it has given consolation, but consolation is not the right thing. Consolation is opium. It keeps you unaware of the reality. And life is flowing past by you so quickly. Seventy years will be gone soon.
anybody who gives you a belief system is your enemy. Because the belief system becomes the barrier for your eyes, you cannot see the truth. The very desire to find the truth disappears. But if all your belief systems are taken away from you, in the beginning certainly it is bitter. I know the fear, the anxiety that will surface immediately, which you have been suppressing for millennia. But it is there, very alive. No God can destroy it. Only the search for truth and the experience of truth, not a belief, is capable to heal all your wounds, to make you a whole being, and the whole person is the holy person to me. So if God is removed and you start feeling fear and dread and anxiety and anguish, that simply indicates God was not the medicine. It was just a trick to keep your eyes closed. It was a blinding strategy to keep you in darkness and to keep you hoping that beyond death there is paradise. Why beyond death? Because you are afraid of death. So the priest creates a paradise beyond death. Just to take away your fear, but it is not taken away, it is only repressed in your unconscious. And deeper it is repressed, the more difficult it is to get rid of it. So I want to destroy all your belief systems, all your theologies, all your religions. I want to open all your wounds so they can be healed. The real medicine is not a belief system. The real medicine is meditation. Do you know both the words come from the same root? Medicine and meditation. Medicine heals the body, meditation heals your soul. But their function is the same, healing. Once you drop the God, you are certainly free. But in this freedom, you will be filled with anxiety, 
fear, dread, anguish, unless you start moving inwards to find your authentic being, your original face, your Buddha, you will be trembling. Your whole life will be destroyed, you may become insane the way Frederick Nietzsche became insane. And he is not the only person who became insane. There are many philosophers who have committed suicide because they found there is nothing in life and they never looked inwards. Because they found there is no meaning, no sense, why go on living? One of the great novels, perhaps the greatest in all the novels in all the languages, is Fyodor Dostoevsky's novel Brothers Karmazov. It is far more important to read it than Holy Bible, our Holy Quran, our Holy Gita, our all three combined. <laughs> Brothers Karmazov has such a deep insight into everything, but Fyodor Dostoevsky got mad. He has created the greatest novels in the world, but he himself lived a very miserable, very sad, very much afraid life. He was not a man of joy, but he has tremendous insight, intellectual, into every problem that man is bound to face. All problems he has tackled, Brothers Karmazor is such a big novel that nowadays nobody reads it. People like just to watch the television. It is perhaps near about one thousand pages. And with intense argument, One of the brothers, there are three brothers, one brother is a very pious, believing, God-fearing, youngest brother, and he wants to become a monk and move to a monastery. The second brother is absolutely against God, absolutely against religion, and in a discussion with his younger brother, he is continuously, they are discussing about all these problems that you are discussing. 
He said, if I, if I meet ever God, the first thing I am going to do is to give him the ticket back and tell him that, keep it, I don't want your life, it is meaningless. Just show me the way out, I don't want to be in the world, I just want to get out of existence. Death seems to me to be more peaceful than your so-called life. Just take the ticket back. I don't want to travel in this train. And you never asked me. It is against me. You have forced me in this train. And now I am suffering unnecessarily. I had no freedom of choice. Why you gave me birth? That's what he is saying that he is going to ask if he meets God. On what grounds you gave me birth? Without my permission you created me. Now this is perfect slavery. And without asking me one day you will kill me. You have planted every kind of sickness in me, you have planted every kind of sin in me, and I am condemned and you are the reason. Who has planted sex in you? It must be God who created man and who told Adam and Eve, that go into the world and multiply, create as many children as you can. Obviously he has made them sexual and he had created the couple. Ivan Karmazov, the atheist brother, says that if I find him, And who knows, he may be still living and Frederick Nietzsche may be wrong, then I am going to kill him. I will be the first to make the whole humanity free from this dictator who on the one hand implants sex, violence, anger, greed, ambition, all kinds of poisons in men. And on the other hand, his representatives go on hammering you that sex is sin, you should be celibate. It's strange. George Gurdjieff used to say, all religions are against God. There is meaning in his statement. He was not a man to make any statement without a deep, intense understanding. When he says all religions are against God, he is saying God gives you sex and religions teach you celibacy. What do you mean? God gives you greed and religions teach you no greed. God gives you violence 
and religions teach you no violence. God gives you anger and religions say no anger. It is such a clear-cut argument that all religions are against God. Ivan Karmazov says, if I meet him anywhere, I am going to kill him. But before killing him, I am going to ask all these questions. The whole novel is a tremendous argument. The third brother is not their real brother. He is born out of a woman who was not the wife of their father, who was only a servant. So the third brother is kept almost out of the eyes of society. So he remains retarded. He is almost like an animal, eats, drinks and lives in a dark place in the vast palace of the Karmazovs. Certainly, his life is absolutely meaningless. And Ivan Karmazov said, think about our cousin brother, illegitimate, but God also created him. What is the meaning of his life? He cannot even come out in the sun, in the air. Our father keeps him such into darkness. Nobody ever comes to see him, nobody ever comes to greet him. Nobody is his friend in this whole earth. He knows nobody else. He cannot speak well because he has never spoken to anybody. His whole life is just like an animal, eating, drinking, sleeping, eating, drinking, sleeping. He will never know any woman. He will never know any love. What will happen to his sex instinct? It is a very intense argument about all the problems human beings will face. Any intelligent man is going to face. Ivan is bringing all those problems that what do you say? What your God says about my cousin brother? What meaning he has? Why he has created him this way? If anybody is responsible, he is responsible and I am going to take revenge. Just let me find him. And I hope Ivan Karmazov says, that Nietzsche is not right, that he is not dead, otherwise I will miss the chance to murder him. I want to murder him so that whole humanity becomes free from him. But once you make humanity free, 
freedom for what? For fear? For death? For suicide? For murder? For theft? Freedom for what? One of the existentialist novels says that a young man is brought up before a coach because he has killed on the beach an stranger. So much so that he has not even seen his face. He was sitting looking at the sunset and this man came from behind and pushed a knife into her back and killed him. And he has not seen who he is. It is a very strange case. You don't kill like that unless you have some enmity, some anger, some revengefulness. But they were not even known to each other. They were not even friends. You can kill friends. And friends are killing each other. But he was not even a friend. What to say about an enemy? Because you can make somebody an enemy only if you make him first your friend. That step is necessary. First friend, then enemy. You cannot make somebody enemy directly. Some acquaintance, some friendship is needed to become an enemy. But the court is at a loss. The judge asks the man, why you killed a stranger whose face you have not seen, whose name you do not know, The man said, it does not matter. I was feeling so bold, I wanted to do something. Something that brings my photograph to all the newspapers. It has come. I feel a little less bold. And anyway, there is no meaning in life what that idiot was doing. What he was going to do if he ha I have not killed him. Just repeating the same thing that he has done already many times. So what is the first? Why I have been brought into the court? The magistrate seems absolutely puzzled. There is no eyewitness except this man himself says that I have killed that man. But without witnesses you cannot punish me. I may be lying. Who knows? But there is no witnesses. Then circumstantial witnesses are, are brought in the court. One neighbor says that there is a possibility this man is strange. His mother died on Sunday. And when he was in farm, he said, that woman I always knew will create trouble only on Sunday. 
This is the holiday. Could not see die on Saturday or Friday, but I knew perfectly well from the very beginning that that woman who has been a torture my whole life is going to destroy one of my holidays. And it has come to be true. And when asked that why you are feeling so angry, he said, I am feeling angry because I have purchased two tickets, one for my girlfriend and one for myself, and we were going to the movie. And this woman could have died any other day. What is the point in dying on Sunday? I don't understand at all, but I know her mind. <laughs> Another man comes and he says he buried his mother and then he was dancing in a disco that very evening with a very young beautiful woman. And when asked that your mother has died just in the morning, it does not look right that you should dance in the evening in a disco. He said, what do you mean? Now every time I will dance it will be after the death of my mother. So what does it matter whether twelve hours, six hours, twelve days, fifteen days, five years, it will be always after the death of my mother. So when I looked at the fact, do you want me never to dance because my mother has died? He is absolutely logical. But inhuman. So these witnesses go on telling about him that this man is strange. He can do anything which has no relevance. But that man says that I don't see any relevance in life itself. What is the crime in killing a man? I am simply freeing him from the bondage. I am not committing a sin. I am not committing a crime. I am simply helping the man who was covered enough to commit a suicide. A negative philosophy will bring these results. A negative philosophy basically will lead humanity into madness and its ultimate conclusion can only be commit suicide. A great negative philosopher of Greece, Zeno, actually preached suicide is the only way out. His whole life, and you will be surprised, thousands of his disciples committed suicide because he was a very convincing man and he lived up to the age 90. <laughs> when asked just before his death that it is a very strange thing, Thousands of young people have committed suicide because of your philosophizing. 
that life is meaningless, no significance, it is cowardice that people are living. They cannot gather courage enough to take a jump and be finished. Don't be a coward. Only society can prove that you are not a coward. He was very convincing. It seems convincing. If somebody says to you that only society can prove that you are not a coward, otherwise what is the point of living? What you have done up to now, half of the life you have lived, what is the result? What is the outcome? You will live the same, the remaining half, and would die like an animal. At least have the dignity to commit suicide. That man was saying that birth was not in your hands. But at least don't let death be also your master. Be master of your death. Commit suicide. His arguments are very profound. He is saying you were helpless as far as birth is concerned. You could not do anything. It has to happen, but about death there is a possibility. Either you die like an animal, or you commit a suicide like a man. Suicide gives the dignity to man that he is free to choose his death. And he convinced many young people and they committed suicide. At the last moment somebody asked that thousands of people have committed suicide according to your philosophizing and argumentation. Why you have not committed suicide? Why you have lived a long life? Now you are ninety. That man said, I had to live just to teach my philosophy. It was a burden, but out of compassion I had to live. Otherwise, who was going to teach? The only right approach towards life is death. I have suffered whole life. You call me living long. I have been suffering whole life. I have dropped my own dignity by not committing suicide because I had to take care of my fellow citizens, particularly my disciples. Now I am perfectly happy that they all have committed suicide. I can die in peace. I have done my work. Negative philosophy is going to bring such conclusions. Zen is the only living alternative, positive alternative, because it gives you a sense of direction, a sense of fulfillment, a sense of eternity, and a sense of going beyond birth, death, body, and being one with this beautiful existence, which is 
immensely intelligent. The second question, is it possible for men to live without God? Yes. In fact, it is only possible for men to live without God. A man with God does not live. He hesitates. On every point of living, he is just half-hearted. He is making love and worried about hell. <laughs> now how can he love a woman when the Bible goes on saying that the woman is the gateway to hell? <clears throat> and he is making love. And he is thinking about the Bible and the sermon on the Sunday. <laughs> that the woman is the gateway of hell. What are you doing? So neither he can love nor he can live without love. God has made men in a very schizophrenic stage. Half-hearted in everything. You are earning money and on the other hand you know this is a sin. You are greedy. If you don't earn money, you are starving. And whole nature repels you against starvation, forces you to earn something to feed yourself. Nature pulls one way, God and His representative pull you the other way. You are just in a strange position. In Hindi we have a beautiful proverb. In India, donkeys are being used by the washermen to carry clothes to the river and then after washing he again puts the clothes on the donkey and takes them to every house from where he has collected in the morning. So the proverb is Your life is just like the donkey of a washerman. Neither he is ever at the house nor ever at the river, always in between. Going from the house to the river, going from the river to the house. The donkey's washerman simply means schizophrenia. You are always half. In every act, but because the whole humanity is schizophrenic, you don't realize it, that you love, but you hate the same person you love. Who has created this hate? Because this woman you love and this woman is going to be the gateway to hell. You are bound to hate her too. So you love and you hate. You make friends 
By the evening, in the morning, you become enemies. You go on away and you go on coming together. This goes on continuously. The water remains donkey. You are asking, is it possible for men to live without God? It is only possible without God to live totally, to live meditatively, to live fully. Sigmund Freud's statement is worth remembering because he worked his whole life on sex because sex was the root of all the problems. But he never understood it, that it is not sex that is the problem, it is the suppression of sex that is the problem. The priest is the problem, the God is the problem. The holy scriptures are the problem, sex is not the problem. Sex is such a simple thing. All the animals are enjoying sex and nobody goes to the couch of a psychoanalyst. <laughs> I have never met any animal <laughs> going to the psychiatrist because he is feeling schizophrenic. <laughs> they are all living and enjoying, there is no problem. The pagans, before religions destroyed them from the earth, particularly Christianity, lived very joyously. They had no idea of any sin. They loved women, they danced, they drank, they played music their whole life. was sheer joy. But Sigmund Freud has one statement which I was going to tell you that the priest could not destroy sex, but they have succeeded in poisoning it. They could not succeed to destroy sex, otherwise there would have been no humanity. Sex is there, but they have destroyed the joy in it. They have made it a great sin. So you are committing the sin and the woman is the cause you think. But the reality is totally different. It is the God, but God is only a fiction, so he cannot do anything. The priest is the representative. who is the spokesman of God and who goes on creating all kinds of guilt feelings in you. Those guilt feelings don't allow you to live. Everything is wrong. Everything is a sin. So your question is it possible for men to live without God? 
I say unto you, it is only possible for man to live if he is without God. But this is only half. The fictitious God has to be replaced by an actual experience of truth in meditation. Otherwise you will go insane. The third question, all the religions are based on God, their morality, their commandments, their prayers, their saintliness, everything points towards God. And you say that God is dead, then what will happen to all these great things that are dependent on the concept of God? All those things that are dependent on the concept of God are bogus. Hypocrites are created by all those things. Your morality is not real. It is imposed out of fear or out of greed. A true morality arises only in a meditator's consciousness. It is not something imported from the outside. It is something arising in your very being. It is spontaneous. And when morality is spontaneous, it is a joy. It is simply sharing your compassion and love. If you accept the fiction, but all the qualities which are dependent on God will disappear with God disappearing. They are very superficial. You all have back doors. On the front door, you are a different person. From the back door, you are a different person. Have you ever watched it? On the front door, you are a great Catholic, so religious, so pious, so prayerful, that anybody can think you are a saint, but this is only in your sitting room. From the back door, you are just as human beings are supposed to be. With all their instincts, with all their sex, with all their greed, with all their anger, 
you just look at your God itself. Different religions have different ideas, but all ideas prove one thing that God is the original sinner. The Hindu God created the woman and became infatuated. That was his own daughter. And the woman became afraid. So she became the cow and God became the bull. She rushed and became somebody else and God followed her. That's how all the species have been created by the Hindu theology. It was God following the woman into different forms. The woman was changing forms. God was also changing forms. The woman was always woman. The God was always the male. That's why so many millions of species the woman may have become a female mosquito. God became a male mosquito. But he went on and on. Perhaps he is still going on. And do you think this God is a moral God? And the same is true about all gods, of all religions. The Jewish God says in the Old Testament that I am a very jealous God. I am not the one who is going to forgive you. I am a very angry God. You should not worship anybody else except me. And remember, I am your father, not your uncle. What kind of God? Jealous? Worried that you may worship another God? And finally he says, I am your father, remember, I am not your uncle. Because uncles are always nicer people than the fathers. <laughs> A German Catholic theology professor, Uta Renke Henman, recently made the following comment. The majority of Catholic bishops in the U.S. are sexually disturbed. We must assume that German bishops will soon be calling a commission to see if they are sexually disturbed also. The Burnsburg Church historian, Professor George Dengler, stated the Pope is responsible for a very painful, very terrible sexual morality. And the German Protestant pastor, Helga said when celibacy was introduced in the 10th century, the priest killed the Pope's ambassador and threatened to murder the archbishop. I am amazed that priests today don't resort to similar tactics.
there is a morality which is imposed from the outside, which is never in tune with your heart. And there is a morality that comes from within you. It is always in tune with your heart and in tune with the heart of the universe. That is authentic morality. I don't give you any discipline, any morality. I simply give you a clarity of vision. Out of that clarity, whatsoever comes is good, is divine, is moral. Now the Sutra. A little biographical note, Sekito Kisin was born in China in 700 and was to die 90 years later, known also as Si Tau. Sekito was a contemporary of Matazu, but where the latter was part of what was to become the Rinzai line of Chinese Zen, Sekito was in the Soto line. These are the two lineage of Zen, Rinzai Zen and Soto Zen. Both are the same, just they come from different masters. There is nothing basically different. But there have been so many masters, it is really amazing that there are only two lines. There could have been thousand lines, but Zen is only given to the disciple if he is ready. Sometimes the master never finds a single man who can carry the lineage, so that line simply is finished, come to a full point. So many, many masters have lived and their line will go for two generations, three generations and then will stop. Because it is not a question of following, it is a question of direct transfer between the master and the disciple. Unless the master chooses to transfer, that line is broken. Only two lines are living still. One is Rinzai Zen. We have talked almost all the masters of the Rinzai Zen sect. This Sekito Kishen belongs to the Soto line. You will not see any difference. There cannot be any difference between two enlightened people. It is said that between Matazu and Sekito, Zain took flight. Matazu was a very strange master. You have known about him. He walked just like an animal on force, never stood up on his legs. Not that there was any problem, not that he was hunchback, just he walked 
on the four because he said that is the most relaxed position. It is. Because man is standing almost against nature. No animal stands on two legs. Because when you stand on two legs, your heart has to pump against gravitation towards the head. This cuts your life into half. You could have lived 140 years if you walked like Mathas. But please don't do it. <laughs> because what you will do living 140 years? Because when you are walking like an animal, your blood flow is horizontal and you are not putting extra stress on the heart. Matazu would have never had any heart attack. That was impossible. No animal ever has the heart attack. It is only the man because he has gone against nature. He used to walk on four. That is the whole theory of Charles Darwin of evolution, that man one day was an animal. What kind of animal? Maybe there are differences. But one thing is certain, one time he used to walk on four. There were no heart attacks. Just you see animals, how healthy they are. Not in a zoo. In a zoo they become more human. In the wilderness you see the animals. Just nearby, few hundred miles, there is a beautiful lake, Taloba. It is a reserve forest, very big forest surrounding the lake. Only one government rest house. I used to go there many times. Whenever I will pass by the side, I will go at least to remain in that rest house for one day or two days. It was so lonely, so utter silence. And the forest is full of thousands of deers. Every evening when the sun sets and darkness descends, thousands and thousands, line upon line of deers will come to the lake. You have just to sit and watch. In the dark night their eyes look like burning candles. Thousands of candles moving around the lake. The whole night the scene continues. You get tired because there are so many deers, they go on coming, go on coming. It is such a beautiful experience. But one thing I wondered was that they are all alike. Nobody is fat, nobody is thin, 
Nobody seems to be sick, hospitalized. They are so full of life and energy. You cannot beat a deer if you run by his side. No Olympic winner in the races can run the way a deer can run because he has such thin legs and such a proportionate body and he jumps big hazes without any trouble and his running is a beauty to see. Just the deer's muscles, their movement is so healthy that man looks almost sick. This was the trouble that arose by standing up. Your life has been shortened, your heart is continuously under stress because it has to pump against gravitation, it was not made for that. So Matazu was a very strange man, perhaps there has never been another man so strange. A unique master in himself, he walked on four and always looked like a tiger. Whenever he looked at somebody, people started. A deep trembling. He was a dangerous man. He was very healthy. He was bound to be. He was almost like a bull. Just the horns were missing, otherwise <laughs> So between Matazu on one side Rinzai Zen and Sekito on the other side Soto Zen, Zen took great flights. Both were very powerful people, great masters. As a young boy, Sakito took a stand against an old custom of sacrificing a bull as a means to placate evil spirits. He made a habit of destroying the shrines devoted to such spirits and would release bulls from their enclosures so they could escape. At the age of twelve, Sakito met Master Inno. Inno predicted that Sekito would follow the dharma and advise him to become a monk and go to Master Sigen. After Inno left his body, Sekito went to Sigen. This is just a, a small biographical note about Sekito. Now begins the sutra. Our beloved Master, on their first meeting, Sagan asked Sakito, where do you come from? 
एंड सेक्यूटो रिप्लाइड आई कम फ्रॉम सोखे वेर इनो लिव्ड हिज ओल्ड मास्टर हु हैज सेंट हिम टू सीगेन बिकॉज हिज डेथ वॉज इमिनेंट एंड ही सेट I will not be able to see your enlightenment but you are bound to be enlightened just go to see again this is the beauty of zen no competition at all the whole thing is that everybody should become enlightened where he becomes enlightened is not important who is the master who makes him enlightened is not important seeing the death coming in a set to sekito you are bound to become enlightened but my death is very close by it is better you go to sigain and sigain was his competitor master in no lives in sokei so when sigen asks where do you come from sekito replied i come from sokei in other words he is saying i am coming from ino your computer master he has sent me here Sigin held up a whisk and said did you find this over there Sekito replied no not only was it not over there but it was also not in the westland westland in japan is india what you are asking me it was not in sokei it was not even in india where gautam buddha was born and where mahakashyapa started the zen tradition what it is that was not even with buddha or with mahakashyapa or with bodhi dharma Sigin asked you reached the westland did not you to which sekito replied if i had reached i could have found it only i was missing otherwise it was everywhere because i did not go there it was not there he is talking about his own deed it has been inside him not in sokei and not even in india this is a great dialogue he is saying if i had gone there it would have been there it is within me but he is not directly indicating that it is within me that is the way of zen dialogues nothing direct everything 
very indirect and you have to catch the neck of following the indirect indications what they are meaning. Second said, not yet enough, speak further. Second is testing Sekito whether to accept him as a disciple. Certainly he must be a man of tremendous possibilities, otherwise, you know, his competitor master would not have sent him to him. The competition between masters is a very strange phenomenon. There is an ancient story in India that there were two sweet saps. Both were competitors to each other and both were always quarreling because the street was small as in the past all the streets were very small. They could talk to each other just sitting in their shops and there was always argument. One day the things came to such an end that they started throwing sweets at each other and the whole crowd gathered and they were jumping and catching the sweets and enjoying. The whole fight went on till their both Shops were completely empty and the whole city enjoyed it because they got all the sweets. This story is told to indicate when two masters fight, it is just throwing sweets at each other. <laughs> the disciples enjoy, both of the disciples, both sides eat the sweets and the masters are throwing sweets at each other. The competitor masters were not enemies. They had different methods, but they were working for the same truth from different angles. When Inno thought that his death is coming close, he could not see anyone better than Sigin. Although Sigan was his lifelong competitor, but that is immaterial. He is the best man. He knows him his whole life they have been fighting, arguing, dialogues upon dialogues, pulling each other's legs, and they were close enough, not far away. Sagan said, not yet enough, speak further. You have not said enough. You are very intelligent. Just speak a little more. Sekito replied, you should also speak from your side. How is it you urge only me? You know perfectly well from where I am coming. I am coming from Inno. And you were both equal competitors. 
Nobody could defeat anyone. And I am his best disciple. So don't ask me just to speak. You have to speak from your side also. I represent here my master. He has sent me. I owe everything to my master. So it is not going to be one-sided dialogue. You have to say something also. This is a beautiful experience that even disciples had a dignity. Although he has come to be a disciple to Sagan, but that does not mean that you have to lose your dignity, your individuality, that you have to surrender. No master would like a man who has no dignity. This proves the man has his own integrity. Sagan said, there is no problem for me in answering you, but nobody would agree with it. Sagan continued, when you were at Soke, what did you get there? A very significant statement he has just made without making it look important. He is saying there is no problem for me in answering you, but nobody would agree with it. If a master really speaks his mind, if he really speaks that which is beyond the mind, nobody is going to agree with him. Only few masters, and they are very few, very rare. And he said to Sekito that you will not agree with him. So you are not yet enlightened, you are not yet in that space. You can intellectually argue with me, but you cannot Understand my answers, remember. I am ready to answer any question you have, but nobody is going to agree. At least you are not going to agree. Perhaps your master would have agreed, but it is very rare to find another enlightened man to talk with him where agreement is possible beyond intellect. So it is better, rather than me saying anything, you tell me, when you were at Sokei with Inno, what did you get there? What have you got? Sekito replied, even before going to Sokei, and this is a very beautiful statement, and very deep and profound. Sekito replied, even before going to Sokei, I had not lost a thing. So there is no question of getting anything from Inok. 
I have everything within me. A great thinkers, Martin Buber, a Jewish philosopher, was on his deathbed and it is just few years back. And the rabbi came and he said to Martin Buber, have you made peace with God? Martin Buber's last words, he opened his eyes and he said to the rabbi, I had never quarreled with him. What is the question of making peace with God? And he died. That's what Sekito is saying, even before going to Soke, I had not lost a thing. So there is no question of getting anything there. I have carrying everything within me. Then Sekito asked, when you were in Soke, did you know yourself? Because of his statement that he has not lost anything even before he went to Inno, to his place in Sokei, Sekito asked, when you were in Sokei, did you know yourself? Segen said, how about you? Do you know me now? Sekito answered, yes, I do. How can I know you any further? He continued also, since you left Sokei, how long have you been staying here? Sagan replied, I do not know either. And you, when did you leave Sokei? Sekito said, I don't come from Sokei. He has changed his statement completely. First he has said he is coming from Sokei. That was just a superficial answer from where you are coming. Now things are getting deeper. Second said, I don't come from Sokei. He is meaning that he is coming from eternity. Sokei was just one of the stops on the way. He is not coming from Sokei. He is coming from eternity. There have been many stops. Sokei was one of the stops. 
again responded, All right. Now I know where you come from. Sekito said also, You are a great one. Do not waste time. He was saying that you are unnecessarily wasting time in checking me whether I am of any worth or not. But before you accept me as a disciple, I have accepted you as a master. That's why suddenly he has started calling him Osho. He is saying whether you accept me as a disciple or not, that does not matter. I have accepted you as my master. Osho, you are a great one. Do not waste time. Let us begin the real work. That is the honest seeker's response. Don't waste time into this dialogue and answering and questions. Just let us begin the real work. And the real work is following the inner path to your very center. Tanida wrote, Searching for what? I walk in the wind. He is saying that I don't know what I am searching. How can I know before I have found it? Truth is just a word. How can I say what I am searching? Before I have found it, you cannot say what you were searching. This is a very strange but beautiful statement. He is saying, before you find the truth, you cannot even say you are searching truth. You are simply searching. You don't know what, because if you had known it, there would be no need to search. So you are just groping. Taneda is perfectly right. A seeker is simply groping in the dark, hoping some way must be there. Existence cannot be so cruel. Searching for what? I walk in the wind. I am just flying everywhere, walking in the wind. But I don't know what I am searching. I will know only when I have found it. He is saying, anybody who is searching something is believing in something before he has found it. And that is wrong. That's what all the religions are doing. Creating beliefs before people have even found anything. Before they have known anything, they have been turned into believers, into faithful ones, and their whole search has been destroyed.
I don't say to you what you are searching. I simply show you the way. I simply insist, go on, go on, go on. You are bound to find it because it is there somewhere inside you. If you search deep enough with urgency and totality, you are bound to find it. And you will know only by finding what you were searching. This is a totally different, diametrically opposite standpoint than all the belief systems of the world. A question from Manisa, our beloved Master, is not the fantasy of an omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient God simply a covert expression of man's will to power? Manisa, it is both. First, it is a deep fear of life and death, a fear of ignorance, a fear of not knowing oneself, But out of this fear also arises a desire to power. In fact, the desire to power is always based on an inferiority complex. That's why I say all politicians and all so-called great religious leaders are suffering from inferiority complex. That inferiority complex is a torture to them. They want to be on some great pedestal with great power. That power will help him to get at least a temporary relief from the inferiority complex. Now they know they are worldwide known, that millions of people are following them. How can they be inferior? They can convince themselves that if I have so much power, how I can be inferior? But it does not matter whether you have power or not. Your inferiority cannot be dissolved by power it can be only covered. So God is on the one hand covering fear, dread, death, on the other hand to be believer of a God who is omnipotent, everywhere present, omnipotent, all-powerful, Omnipresent, everywhere present, omniscient, all-knowing, to have belief in such a God helps you somehow to be identified with the God. You are a Christian, 
you identify yourself with Christ and He is the Son of God. You have come very close as far as relationship is concerned. You believe in Krishna and He is the reincarnation of the God, perfect reincarnation. Believing in Him, you have come very close to power. You may not have power, but you believe in a person who has power. So it is also a longing for power, but why you want power? Because you feel weak. You feel powerless. You feel inferior. So religions create inferiority, they create fear, they create greed and out of this creation you are ready to accept a God as all-knowing, everywhere present, all-powerful and you are so close to Him in your faith, in your belief, in your prayer that you are also sharing some power of God. You become a mini-God. But it is all psychological sickness. And God is not the cure. It is time for Sardar Gurdayal Singh. Even laughter is a better cure than God. <laughs> it is little Albert's first day at school. And as soon as his mother brings him to the classroom and leaves Albert, burst into tears. Despite the combined efforts of Miss Memory, his teacher, Mr. Smelly, the principal, Miss Needle, the school nurse, and even Lyra, the janitor. Albert just goes on crying and crying. Finally, just before lunchtime, Miss Memory gets fed up. For heaven's sake, Child, see south, just shut up. It is lunch time now, and in a couple more hours you will go home and see your mommy again. At once Albert stops crying. Jesus Christ, he exclaimed, I thought I had to stay here until I was sixteen. <laughs> Freddy and Shemus are walking home from the pub through the park one day in deep philosophical discussion. For even an hour they have been talking about whether God Almighty rules over their lives or not. Then Freddy gets fed up and says, Ah, God cannot tell me what to do. I am going to the beach for a holiday. 
You mean replies Semas that you are going to the beach God willing? No, snaps Paddy stubbornly. I am going to the beach God willing or not. But just at that moment there is a loud crash of thunder in the sky. Samus covers his head in fear and falls to the ground. When he opens his eyes again, he looks around and finds that Paddy has been changed into a slimy green frog. For seven weeks afterwards, Paddy the frog is forced to live in the park pond and every day Samus brings a handful of dead flies for him to eat. <laughs> Finally, after his penance is completed, Paddy is changed back into his old cell. He immediately walks home and begins packing his bag. Hey Paddy, cries Samus with surprise, my God, you are back. But where are you going now? Like I said, South Speddy, I am going to the beach. You mean, replies Samus, that you are going to the beach, God willing? No, South Speddy furiously, I am going to the beach or I am going back to that goddamn frog pond. <laughs> Sir Loin Salami, the chief executive of Sir Loin Pork Sausages Incorporated, calls his clerk Muffin, a snuffler, into the office. Let us get straight to the point. A snuffler, a snap Sir Loin, your work has been lousy lately. You are late every day, and your accounting errors are ridiculous. You have been working for me for fifteen years, Snuffler, but recently you don't seem to know a pork sausage from a bunch of bananas. <laughs> well, sir, replies Muffling, I have tried not to let it affect my work, but things have been going very badly for me at home. Ah, I am sorry to hear that Snuffler apologizes, Sir Lion. I hope I am not interfering, but if you tell me what is your mind, perhaps I can help. That's very kind of you, Sir. Sniffles Muffin, you see, I have been married for two years and about six weeks ago, my wife started to nag me constantly. You know, nag, nag, nag. I just don't know what to do. She's driving me nuts. Ah, cries Sir Lion, I'm sure that I can help you. You see, Snuffler, women need to feel that they are wanted. You have probably been neglecting her needs. For example, when I get home from work, I embrace my wife, kiss her passionately, remove her clothing piece by piece and carry her upstairs to bed. That sounds great, <laughs> cries Muffin. It is, Snuffler, replies Sir Lion. Why don't you give it a try? 
take the afternoon off. She won't be expecting you and the element of surprise will make it even better. That is really kind of you, sir, says Muffin. What is your address? be your last moment on the earth. Only such urgency can bring you to the deepest center of your being. Rush faster and faster, deeper and deeper. As you are coming closer to the center, a great silence descends over you, almost like soft, cool rain. You can feel it. It is tangible. A little more closer and you find all around you flowers of peace blossoming. A little more And the great ecstasy makes you drunk with the divine. Just one step more, and you are at the very center of your being. For the first time, you see your original face. Your original face is the face of the Buddha. I use the word Buddha as a symbol of total awakening, of absolute enlightenment, a great luminosity will surround you a strange light that you have never seen before. 
the only quality you have to remember at this moment is witnessing that constitutes the buddha's whole being witness that you are not the body witness that you are not the mind witness that you are only the witness to make this witnessing deeper nivedana relax let go but keep remembering you are a buddha and the buddha consists only of one energy and that energy is witnessing at this moment you start melting like ice in the ocean avatam the buddha auditorium is becoming an ocean of consciousness 10000 buddhas are disappearing into the ocean all separation is illusory only oneness is the truth you must be the most blessed people on the earth because everybody is worried about trivia you are searching for the ultimate the eternal and you are very close to it a great blissfulness settles in your very center flowers start showering on you the whole existence is rejoicing with you gather all these experiences you have to bring them to your day to day ordinary life the peace the serenity the silence the ecstasy the music the dance your life has to become a constant ceremony only then you are whole and don't forget to persuade the buddha to come a little more closer he has come very close it is your nature these are the three steps of meditation first the buddha comes behind you like a shadow but very solid and golden with great splendor and creating 
a new atmosphere around you of benediction, of compassion, of bliss. Second step, you become the shadow and Buddha is ahead of you. And your shadow is slowly, slowly disappearing. The third step, you have disappeared into the Buddha and only Buddha is there, you are not. When this happens, you are at the highest peak of existence, you have come home, you have arrived. Now there is nowhere to go. You become one with existence itself. That's why I call my philosophy the more authentic existential than the negative philosophies of the West. I'm trying to bring the West and East together. My whole effort is to make men richer outwards and inwards in a tremendous balance. This balance is Zen. And remember, God is dead. And now, Zen is the only living truth. You are the pioneers of a new age, of a new man, of a new humanity. Before Nivedana calls you back, persuade the Buddha, because this is the fundamental step. He has to become your shadow. Nivedana, come back, but come back as a Buddha with the same grace with the same silence, radiating the same joy, sit down for a few seconds, just to remember the golden path you have traveled and the experience of the beyond that you had come so close the mystery of your inner world, the space, infinite, the time, eternal, and feel the presence of the Buddha behind you. 
this makes Frederick Nietzsche's statement complete. Without Zen, it is incomplete and will drive people insane. With Zen, it becomes complete and will drive people to the uttermost sanity possible to human beings. Okay, Manisha. Yes, Master.